Here's what I want you to do as you're welcoming them. I want to give you a few minutes, and I want you to see at your table. So that means like putting down your phones and, and interacting with real-life people that are right next to you. Four fundamentals of forgiveness. See if you can come up with what those four are there at your table. I'll give you two minutes. Go. All right. Good, good. I hope you got them. What's the first fundamental? Fundamental. Receiving, and when we receive, we can, second fundamental, being, being, and out of being, we can ask, asking, and the result is giving. Very good. You did good. Well, we're talking about that second fundamental. When we recover, this is what we saw last week, when we recover the lost art of being forgiving, Okay, when we recover the lost art of being forgiving, last week we saw that we reflect God's unconditional attitude towards sinners in general. And next Sunday on Easter, we're going to look at the forgiving heart of God, how to be forgiving like our Heavenly Father. We also saw that being forgiving doesn't always result in conditional, the conditional act of personally forgiving the offender. We also saw that it doesn't replace going and giving forgiveness. Well, I can just forgive people in my heart, and I don't have to interact with that uh, nasty, hurtful person I can't stand. Okay, get the idea? Well, I, I forgot, I forgave them, but sure doesn't sure doesn't sound like it. And so we kind of went over when we compared and contrasted. And so you have it there in your notes: the unconditional attitude that we're talking about right now, with the conditional act of actually giving forgiveness that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. So that was all last week, and we basically said this: being forgiving sets us free even when others never ask us for forgiveness or never give us forgiveness. Here's the reality. We live in a world where people don't always repent, right? We live in a world that people don't always give forgiveness when you ask for it. And if you are a true follower of God and you want to please the Lord and you don't want anything in between you and the Lord, which means you don't want anything between you and people, this can create a lot of stress, a lot of tension, and a lot of confusion, and a lot of questions. Now, I've got a stack about this high because I've, over the years, because this is the issue. Forgiveness. A stack of books on forgiveness. And every book... At the back of those books, they have a chapter or appendix that says other questions. Why? Because forgiveness is an issue that's so personal and so intertwined. And it's almost, you do have to go a case-by-case issue to really unravel some of the human messes, right? And some of the human hurt of the human heart. And so the idea is... We can first and foremost be forgiving. And what I wanted, what I ended with last week, and I want to use as a foundation for today is this. This idea of being forgiving without necessarily giving forgiveness until someone asks us is a gospel centered way of being set free. You don't have to resort to some sort of imaginary interaction. You don't have to resort. You can go. To our Lord, it is a gospel-centered way. It's also an unconditional attitude that will set you free 
so that you're not dependent. You're not held captive by those who hurt you or those who won't forgive you. And giving forgiveness, though, is that conditional act. So here's what we're going to focus on this Palm Sunday this morning. Recovering the lost art of being forgiving like Jesus. Because here's what I want you to learn today. Being forgiving, this idea of being forgiving, reproduces. It reproduces the heart attitude of Jesus on the cross and Stephen as he is stoned. And I don't think it's by accident that God is, has these two extreme, really extreme. You say, you don't understand. These people are killing me. Well, guess what? Jesus was being crucified. You don't understand. These people are beating up on me. Stephen being stoned. Okay? So God understands our harmful and hurtful situations. And these two, in these two phrases, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think we will find how to be forgiving. I, I was interacting with someone after last week, and they said, you know, I, I, I really think this concept that you're talking about is biblical. I think it's, I think it's good, but I'm questioning how do, how do I live it out? How does it work in real life? And I think today's lesson is going to help you with that. So let's take a look at it. First of all, how to be forgiving Told toward unrepentant offenders while being crucified. How do I do it? I mean, I mean, they're crucifying me. How can I be forgiving? So turn your Bibles. I hope you have them. Turn your Bibles to Luke 23, and let's look at verses 33 through 43. 33 through 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. So let's take a look at it. Let's read through it. Follow along. When they came to the place called the skull, they, were cru- they crucified him and the criminals, one on the left and the other on the right. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the Roman soldiers, they were there, and they also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were who were hanged there, was hurling, hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. You see, the mocking's the same. Whether it's a Jew, a Roman, or a criminal, they're all mocking him. Look, if you're so great, why are you suffering? But the other answered, and here's verse 40, But the other answered and rebuking him, which is a very strong word, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in 
paradise. Wow, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Now, let's look at verse 34. So zero in on verse 34. Now that you know the context, and we're going to ask seven questions, and I want you to look, and I want you to answer and interact. So let's look at verse 34. What does Jesus actually say? Father, forgive them. Notice he doesn't say, he says, Father, you forgive them. He does not say, Father, I forgive you, I forgive them. He doesn't say that to the Father, I forgive them. And he doesn't say to anyone out there, I forgive all of you. I think sometimes we hear what we want to hear and we don't see what is actually said. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, why did he say that? Why did he say, you forgive them instead of I forgive them? I would put forth to you. Because the attitude of being forgiving is unconditional and that's what he's demonstrating. But the act of giving, of forgiving, is conditional. And what he prays here to the Father, he prays repeatedly. There in the Greek, he is repeat. He's not just saying once. You know, sometimes we these statements from the cross, we think he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And then he went on to the second statement and all the way up to the seventh statement. No, it says there in, in, in the original language, he, he kept saying, he repeatedly said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And one thing that, in, in, again, interacting with different people during this series, and I, just, I know and you probably know, forgiveness is an ongoing process. So you don't just declare something to God and then think it's all settled. No, sometimes Jesus repeatedly said this. And so it's okay to repeatedly say that, all right? Number two, who does he pray it to? What's verse 34 tell us? He prays it to his father. He doesn't say, he doesn't address the unrepentant. He doesn't address the Romans who are mocking him. He doesn't address the Jewish leaders who are sneering at him. He doesn't address the crowds that are indifferent to his suffering. He doesn't say it to the people who are... are who. Um, who are unrepentant. He says it to his father. Why to the father and not to the offenders? I would put forth to you because the attitude of being forgiving is unconditional. But the act of giving forgiveness is conditional. So he doesn't address. Jesus is going to the father. Why? Because he ultimately knows. Listen, he knows There has to be a sovereign and gracious change of heart in these offenders. And who's going to do that? Who's going to produce that change of heart? The Father. The Father. Okay? Sometimes we get so focused on our offenders and how they're not repentant and they're not changing heart that we try to help them change their heart. You ever try to help someone who hurt you change their heart? How's that go? I'll tell you how's it go. You get more hurt. And they get more angry and they feel like you're trying to control them because you are trying to fix them. And instead, you go to the Father because ultimately, look, no one's going to ask for forgiveness or give forgiveness until they receive God's forgiveness and their heart is changed. Are you with me? Father, forgive them because ultimately they need a change of heart. Now, who does he say it about? Who is the them? Look at verse 34. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Who are the them? Now, this isn't, this isn't 
you know, we're not trying to break the Jesus code here. This isn't mysterious. You don't have to buy my book to figure it out. Who's the them? We read the context. Who is it? And who are they? Let's be, is the context more specific? Okay, the people standing by, it says the people are standing looking. Who else? The Jewish leaders, right? Who else is, is listed in the context? Yeah, the Roman soldiers and even the criminals and in other uh, gospel accounts, both the one on the left and the right, they're everybody. It's, it's, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It's not just the Romans. It's not just, they're all. Forgive these who are crucifying me, mocking me, insulting me, sneering at me. And, and, and by the way, listen, in the context, they are doing this repeatedly. So you've got this repeated offense, and then you've got this repeated prayer, Father, forgive them. All right? Number four. Does Jesus actually say, I forgive all of you? No, no. But he will eventually forgive at least one of them. And who is that going to be? The thief or the rebel, the murderous rebel. And why does he do it? What? Yes, John, he, he asked for it, not in those exact words, but he interacted. He asked, did, did he forgive the, the, the I, don't, I don't know if we know which one's on the left and the right, but did he forgive the other one? No. Was he forgiving towards the other one? Yes. Did he forgive the one? Yes. Something was different. Something was different. He went from being to actually giving. And we're going to see why. Number five, does everyone who is crucifying Jesus actually get forgiven by God? What? Did somebody say yes? I said eventually, yes. Really? Everybody eventually gets forgiven by God? We'll have a counseling session afterwards. No, no, no I, you're interacting. That's fine. But no, they don't. They don't. Why? Because if, every, if God answers that prayer, Father, forgive them. And it includes everybody that was there that day. Then that would mean all those people got saved. And when we preach the gospel, it would imply who else gets saved. Everyone. And that would be universalism. And the Bible doesn't teach that everybody gets saved in the end. Is the Father, as we're going to see next week, is the Father forgiving towards all sinners? Is the Son forgiving? Yeah, Father, forgive them. But do they all get forgiven? No, being forgiving towards a person is not the same as granting them forgiveness. If that's the case, then we are teaching universalism from this passage. And that is unbiblical. Um, so, and also under this, if everybody got forgiven that day because Jesus said those words and had a forgiving heart, you wouldn't need Acts 2. Why would Peter get up in Acts 2, um, 40 days later, 
But he's speaking to the same crowd, that same Jerusalem crowd. And he says, look, you've crucified the Lord. And they were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do? And he didn't say, don't worry about it. Jesus said these words on the cross. You're all forgiven. No, he says, repent and you and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. You still need to be forgiven by God. Number six, does everyone who is crucifying Jesus actually get forgiven by Jesus. Okay? Some are saying yes, some are saying no. That's why we're interacting on this. Yeah, the, you're, you're exactly right. When you look down, see, that's what I'm saying. I think when we read this passage, we're hearing things that aren't being said. And we're thinking things that aren't being done, and then we seek to apply something that's a misapplication. Jesus doesn't end up forgiving everyone there because who's going to be the judge at the end of the at the end of the age? Who's the judge? No, who does the Father entrust? Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. The Father who has that right bestowed it on the only other person who is worthy of that, and that Jesus Christ is the judge. Well, if Jesus has granted them forgiveness, how can he cast anyone in hell? He couldn't, and you're back to universalism, and the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible has Jesus in Acts chapter uh, uh, Revelation 19, and we're going to talk about it today in Daniel 7. He's the Son of Man, the Avenger of the Saints. He's going to bring wrath, and He comes with a sword out of His mouth, and His garment is dripped in blood. And He comes and establishes and executes the wrath of God. Well, that would be a contradiction if He's forgiven everybody. Number seven, does anyone ever get forgiven? And if so, how does it happen? Yes, right in this passage where he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what you do. We see an individual, one of the rebels, actually gets given forgiveness. And we're going to look at why. Yes, one of the rebels. I would even say to you, I think, although it's not as clear, I think one of the Roman centurions uh, had a change of heart of repentance and said, this is the Son of God. But that passage is not as clear. And we actually can go to Acts 2, where 3,000 people repented and responded to Peter's sermon. But what I want to do is focus today on this passage, this context, where he is being forgiven, and let's see the conditions under which he grants it. How did the rebel on the cross ever repent and ask for forgiveness? Because, see, when you talk about how do people get saved, or even more specific, how do you grant and give forgiveness? People will go to the, uh, the rebel on the cross and say, See, repentance is not involved there. He didn't do anything. He's nailed. His hands are nailed. His feet are nailed. There's no repentance there. It's simply a belief. It's simply a decision, a change of his mind. But I would put forth to you that there are seven different ways in which repentance is manifested, even by this man who has sec- or hours, let's say hours to be accurate, he has hours to live, he's a dying man, and yet he demonstrates 
the attributes, the characteristics of repentance and faith and even asking for forgiveness. So let's take a look at it. Uh, remember this as we dive into this. And this, these, are, these are verses 40 through 43. So we're looking at 40, or actually it's 39, 39 through 43 in Luke chapter 3. And please remember, uh, let's, uh, a biblical definition of, of, of repentance is a change of mind, but you've got to understand biblically, mind, heart, will, emotion are all together. So it's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Okay, that is the total process of repentance and faith. So let's take a look at it. number one. So here's what we want to do. The rebel had a change of mind or you, even better to say a change of heart about at least seven things. And, and, and it's subtle. But if you don't think through this, you don't realize how radically this man changed, even though he was dying on a cross. First of all, he had a change of mind about the future wrath of God. He had a change of mind about his future wrath of God, his judgment, his deserving the wrath of God. Look at verse 40. Suddenly he went from mocking Christ. As I said, the other accounts say he was mocking just as much as the other rebel. He went from mocking Christ. Suddenly he goes to fearing God. That's a radical change. Verse 40. But the other rebel answering rebuked him, saying... Do you not fear God? Something changed. And it was a fear of God and His holy wrath. Number two, he had a change of mind or heart about his own rebellion, rightly deserving to be punished. Suddenly, this guy goes from defending his rebellious heart to saying, I deserve to die on this cross. Now, if I've never worked in the penal system and never planned to uh, spend any time there. Good, good goal in life. But as I understand it, there's nobody guilty in, in prison. Nobody's, you know, nobody's to blame in prison. Because, you know, hey, I, I don't deserve this. I don't de-. And that's the way these guys were. They were like, they were mocking Jesus and saying, look, if you're really who you say you are, get us out of this. We don't deserve this. We deserve to live. And suddenly he says this in verse 40 and 41. Do you not fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive our due reward for our deeds. Whoa. That is a radical mark of repentance. I fear God's wrath because I deserve God's wrath. All right? Number two, he has a change of heart about Christ's righteousness. He has a change of heart about Christ's righteousness who did not deserve to be punished in this way. Look at verse 41. And indeed, we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, this rebel has joined Pilate. He's joined Pilate's wife. He's joined Herod. And he's even joined the Jewish leaders who had to pay for false witnesses. And he is claiming, as they all claimed, this man is innocent. 
Now listen, when you put those two things together, when you see God for who He is, and you see Christ in His perfect righteousness, you see your sinfulness, and you're in a position for repentance. Okay? Number four. This man has a change of heart and mind about Christ's authority to rule as king in his coming kingdom. Notice what this man asks. He doesn't reduce the gospel like we do so much to, will you forgive my sins so I can go about my life feeling good about the future? Would you save me so I could have the best life now? You know why he doesn't say that? Well, one, he's being crucified, okay? See, he understands what we should all understand. From a 10-year-old to a 90-year-old, life is but a vapor. It's a point unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And he says, look, this isn't about this life. I want to live with you in your coming kingdom. I want to submit to you and your lordship. I want to be a subject ruled by you. That's what salvation is. Salvation is a transfer. Yes, it's a forgiveness of sins, but it's a change of heart to where you enter into not only God's family, but Christ's kingdom, right? You're asking for someone to lord over you. And it's a good thing that he is a gracious and kind and forgiving Lord. Amen. So here's, that's what he does. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it really gets highlighted in this fifth thing. He has a change of heart and mind about Christ's ability to redeem him from his sins. And this is captured in the phrase, remember me. Now, I can't delve into this and prove it to you today. It would take too much time. But when he says, remember me, I mean, have you ever thought about, what's that? what does he mean, remember me when you enter my kingdom? What's he really asking? Well, that's really an Old Testament term. It's a covenant faithfulness term. It's a term all the way back into Exodus. And it's a term that God's people would use to God saying, Remember me when I'm in need of forgiveness. Remember me when I'm in need of deliverance. And what he's saying is, Remember your covenant promises to be a saving, gracious, compassionate, powerful God. He's not just saying, get me out of hell. He's saying, I embrace your covenant promises. I embrace you as the covenant king, that you will keep your promises, that if I come to you and confess my sinfulness and acknowledge your righteousness, that you will deliver me from my sins and take me with you into your kingdom. Wow. Why do you think he said to Jesus, remember me? I think the reason is he had just heard him pray many times, what? Father, forgive them, for they do not know. He looked at this man and said he's more than a man. And he looked at this man and he said that he's righteous, I'm not. And he looked at this man and he said he's God's covenant king. He is the king of the Jews. And he said... This one is forgiving. That means he'll forgive me. That means I need to ask for it. And in asking for it, I can trust him to give it to me. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Number six. 
He has a change of mind and heart about God's revelation of Jesus as Lord, the only Savior. Not, not some, some abstract Jesus, but look at what he says in verse 42. And uh, the NAS, the NIV, ESV, the, 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 in the King James and New King James, it says Lord. But in the more recent translations, it says Jesus, following the better manuscript evidence. Here's one of those times where the newer translations actually put Jesus in. They're always getting accused. I'm getting off track there. That's huge. Because I think, and I didn't have time to check it this week, but I think this is the only time in the New Testament where someone simply addresses Jesus by his name. He turns to him, and he knows he's Messiah. He now knows that he's king. He knows that he's righteous. But he turns to him, and he says, Jesus. And when you trace through the theology of Luke and Acts, this name Jesus in Luke chapter 1, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then you move to Luke's second book, Acts. And in Acts 5.31, we read, God exalted him at his right hand as Lord and Christ to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then, of course, in Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they said, What should we do? They were cut to heart. He says to them in verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He realizes There's one man and one name, one mediator between man and God, and it's Jesus. Number seven, he has a change of mind about Christ's resurrection from the dead. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that kingdom is not puffy, puffy clouds with naked cupids with angels and arrows floating around. It's a kingdom on earth. Kingdom of God on earth. And so he's saying, Jesus, I believe you're going to resurrect. And when you resurrect, I'm going to resurrect. And I want to resurrect into life and into your kingdom. Think about this. When he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom, the the rebel believes at least four truths about Jesus. He believes that he will go ahead and die. He believes that he'll be buried in some way. He believes that he'll rise again sometime in the future. And he believes that he will return to earth sometime in the future to establish his kingdom on earth. Folks, that's the gospel. He believes the gospel. You say, but I don't see the four goal. You know, I don't see the four steps to peace with God here. Okay. I don't see the gospel presentation of the Romans road here. Well. First of all, Romans hasn't been written, okay? But you've got to understand the concepts are there. The, the truth is there. This is the gospel. Now, I said, wait a minute, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I thought this guy's crucified. Hours 
maybe now minutes away from dying. What, what kind of change of life? Well, let me show you there's four things. First of all, look at what he stopped doing. What had he been doing in verse 39? Mocking. What did he stop doing? Mocking and started asking Christ. His speech changed radically. Okay. Number two, what did he start doing? Look at verse 40. He went from, he, he started exposing sin. He started seeing sin in himself and sin in others. That word rebuke in verse 40 is a strong word. He's like, look, he hates sin now. He has a different view of sin and sinners. Number three, look who he turned to for salvation. He turned. And I believe, now I can't prove this from the text, and I don't know where the crosses were positioned, and neither do you, and neither does Hallmark Cards or anyone else that draws pictures of it. But he very likely turned his head, and he turned to the one whose name, who's the only name under heaven and earth by which you could be saved, and he said, Jesus. He turned to Christ alone. And then number four, there was a change of life seen in why he asked for salvation. He asked for salvation because he wanted to enjoy being under the the lordship and the ruler, the rule of Jesus. Now, you got to understand, this guy is an insurrectionist. He's a revolutionary. He's a rebel at heart. That's his identity. And now he's saying, oh... I just want to submit myself. I just want to be ruled over by the God-man, the king of the Jews. Now, don't miss that both thieves asked to be saved by Jesus. But only one does Jesus say, this day you will be with me in paradise. Because one never repented, and one asked for physical deliverance, and the other one understand, understood the bigger issue is spiritual deliverance. All right? Now, you might be saying at this point, okay, but Jesus was God, and man, I'm not Jesus. You don't understand what people have done to me. Well... This forgiving attitude of Jesus on the cross is meant to be reproduced in others and reproduced in his people. And the reason we know that is turn your Bibles to Acts 7. Turn your Bibles to Acts 7. Because in Acts chapter 7, we're going to learn how to be forgiving toward unrepentant offenders while being stoned. And no, I don't mean that kind of stoned. Okay, just to clarify. I mean... When people are brutally beating up on you and attacking you and trying to kill you. Look at Acts chapter 7 and let's look at verse 53. Acts chapter 7 verse 53. Stephen said, you who received, uh, 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet you do not keep it. That's a pretty heavy accusation confrontation, rebuke of sin. Look at how they respond, the Jewish leaders. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We're going to see upstairs in Daniel 7. That's exactly 
who Jesus is. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who does that sound like? What did Jesus say on the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Then, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice because he wanted them to hear what he was saying to the Lord. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And then, oh, by the way, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So what does Stephen actually say? Verse 60, what does he actually say? Lord... Do not hold this sin against him. Look, he doesn't say, Lord, I forgive them. He doesn't say to all of them while the rocks are hitting him, I forgive you, boom. I forgive you, boom. Hit me again, I forgive you. He's not saying that. Why? Because the attitude of being forgiving is unconditional. And the act of giving forgiveness is conditional. Who does he say it to? This is interesting. Now that Jesus has risen and is at the right hand of the Father and is the avenger of God's people and the judge of every living and dead person on the planet, who does he address? He doesn't address the Father anymore. He addresses the Lord. He addresses the Lord. Why? Because he's risen. He's reigning. And he's the Son of Man, the avenger of God's people. And he addresses the judge. Number three. Who does he say it about? We're not going to go all into it. He says it about people that are in the process of stoning him to death. He says it particularly about a very angry, a very murderous young man by the name of Saul, who will become who? Paul. But how's he going to go through that process? Four, does Stephen actually say, I forgive all of you? Yes or no? No. Does everyone who is stoning Stephen actually get forgiven by God? No, that would be universalism. And the Bible doesn't teach that, and we don't believe that or preach that here. Six, does everyone who is stoning Stephen actually get forgiven by Stephen or by the Lord that he addresses? No, one day Jesus will be the one to judge them according to their works and unleash God's wrath on them. Seven, does anyone ever get forgiven? And if so, how does it happen? Who? Saul, Paul, and how does it happen? Well, you've got to read Acts 9, and we can't take you through that glorious process. But you say, well, he had a divine revelation of Jesus. No, he did have that, but he also had a disciple by the name of Ananias. And he had to do business and had to have a messenger and had to have a process to go through. Now, what are the lessons to learn here? Here's the practicality. You say, so here's what I'm putting forth to you. Jesus modeled it, being forgiving on the cross. And Stephen, a believer, a man just like us here, a follower of Christ, imitated it and modeled it and reproduced the same heart. So here's four things I leave you with. Number one, being forgiving is a radical attitude toward unrepentant offenders. It's radical Because there's no limits to it. There's nobody in your sphere who has hurt you, 
is hurting you and will never repent of it that you can't still be forgiving towards. Now remember, forgiveness is a supernatural talent given to God's people, and it's a heart change. Okay, we can't do this without the gospel. But it's a radical attitude. Listen, if Jesus can be forgiving to those who are actually crucifying him, then we can be forgiving to those who are crucifying us. If Stephen can be forgiving to those who were actually in the process of stoning him to death, then we can be forgiving towards those who repeatedly attack and even abuse us. I said it was a radical attitude. Would you agree? Number two, being forgiving is a radical readiness to forgive. It's a radical readiness to forgive the offender before they ever repent and even if they never do. It's not the act of giving forgiveness, which requires repentance, confession, and asking for it. We see it in the repentant thief and rebel, and we see it in the repentant man Saul. Lord, what do you want me to do? It's a radical readiness to give it before the offender even asks for it. And it's a radical willingness to forgive before they even repent. Now, notice, when the, when the, when the thief turns to Jesus, does Jesus say, Well, I don't, you know, he couldn't, I guess he couldn't hold his chin because he's crucified. But he doesn't say, Well, let me think about it. Or tell me what you've done, and I'm not sure you deserve this. No, because he already said, Father, forgive. He's got a willingness. The gift is here. I am ready to give. All you got to do is come and ask. It's a radical readiness. It's a radical willing. And, and listen, the danger in this idea of being forgiving but not giving is some people abuse this and hold people's unrepentance over their head. Well, I'd forgive you, but you're still a dirty, rotten scoundrel, and you don't know it, and and let me spend some time sharing it with you, and if you still don't get it, I'll share with a lot of other people how unrepentant and mean you are. That's not that's not what being forgiving is. Being forgiving is, look, I, I'm ready to do this, and I've dealt with my heart, and I've dealt with God, and I'm at peace, even while you're still at war, Okay? Number three, being forgiving is a radical request for God, the just judge, to show mercy to the unrepentant offender. So again, you're not, it's not the act of giving forgiveness which requires repentance, confession, and asking. It's a request for God to be forgiving to the unrepentant just as he's been forgiving to us when we were unrepentant. Aren't you glad God was forgiving? This is what Easter is about, folks. God the Father and God the Son were forgiving to us before we acknowledged it, wanted it, or even realized it. Amen? And listen, when we came to Him and asked Him to forgive us, it was instant. Why? Because He had a forgiving heart, right? Wow. And here's the thing, you're going to the God the Father, and you're going to Jesus the Judge, and basically what you're saying is, 
they're unrepentant and you're a just judge. I know you're going to pour the wrath out on these people, but I'm asking you to be forgiving to them. I'm asking, I want mercy for the undeserving. I want forgiveness for the unrepentant. It shows a forgiving heart, and you know God has that forgiving heart. So here's, here's a question. Is it wrong to tell unrepentant people that you forgive them before they repent or ask? That's a practical question, right? Is this a good idea? Well, I'll tell you, I'm not going to, you know, I, I can't tell you yes or no. I mean, that's something you need to work out the application of. But my suggestion on that would be to not do that and to use more biblical language and say something like what you've done and are still doing is wrong, whether you ever repent of it or not. But I've chosen to be forgiving towards you and I am eager to forgive you whenever you do repent and whenever you do confess and whenever you do ask me for it. Let me tell you, it will be I am ready. I am ready. I think that's more biblical. And I think it puts the ball in their court, right? Because the second, you, I mean, well, first of all, telling people you, you forgive them when they don't even think they've sinned is really offensive to people. It doesn't really build a bridge. They're like, what, what do you mean? What are you forgiving me for? I haven't done anything. Here's another way to say it. I've already forgiven you in my heart, and I've released you in the entire matter over to the Lord. For my part, I'm ready and willing to forgive you whenever you're ready to talk about it. See, I think that manifests what Jesus did and what Stephen did. Number four and final, being forgiving is a radical releasing of the unrepentant offender into the hands of a merciful judge. See, when you say, I forgive you to an unrepentant person, you're doing more than what God does. But when you release them, guess who gets, who gets set free? You do. Who is still responsible before the Lord for their sins? They are. Okay? Now, if you're going to be radically forgiving like this, it's going to, you're going to love your enemies. You're going to do good those who, to those who despise you. You're going to pray for them. What is the, what's the common theme here? There is prayers going up. For unrepentant people. You know, we can do a lot of inviting, and I hope we do, and we need to do more. But we need to do even more praying for the unrepentant. And so come tonight, right down here, Ignite. We're praying for God to move on unrepentant hearts. And I guarantee you, everyone is sitting here who is truly born again is here because somebody was persistent in praying for you. Amen? And when we pray for more lost people to get saved, we, God, I think, will honor that and we will see more lost people saved. Amen? And receive this beautiful gift that Palm Sunday is all talking about, forgiveness of sins. Let's go to the Lord. Father, wow, this is, this is huge stuff. It's, it's liberating. It sets us free and it sets us in to the likeness of Christ. Lord, it is a struggle, it is spiritual warfare to be this forgiving. But as your children, we can be this forgiving. And right here, right now, there's different levels of spiritual warfare, different levels of the need to be forgiving. Do what only you can do. 
radically change and transform our hearts. And those of us that know you like the repentant rebel, may we rejoice that we're under your lordship and may we live out the kingdom forgiveness that you modeled on this cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's be forgiving. 